Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, and Orvis Fly Fishing. In today's episode, we sit down with Captain John Landry, who guides in his home waters of South Florida, as well as Alaska's renowned Bristol Bay. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground and discuss his upbringing and the formation of his early years skipping school and fishing with his father, how he got started in guiding trout and salmon in Alaska, how to prank your fellow guides into thinking they're caught up in a bear fight, and his recent involvement with Captains for Clean Water's film, Everyone in Between. This was a fun interview to record, but also an important podcast for me to partner with Captains for Clean Water due to the dangers that are facing these incredible fisheries. Whether you're excited to hear about conservation, tired and growing weary of it, or feel uninformed, you're going to enjoy John's insights, stories, and practical tips. To learn more about Captains for Clean Water and to watch the film, Everyone in Between, head to captainsforcleanwater.com. Also check out my previous podcast, episode 36, with co-founder Chris Whitman. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you, you know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer starts. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? Out? So look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey, John, thanks so much for hanging out with us on the podcast today. I can guess with the release of Everyone in Between, it's been a, a bit of a busy week for you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thanks for having me, Hunter. Yeah. Before we get into talking about that film, and I thought that captains and everybody involved in that project did a really, really great job. Um, I'd love just to hear about you personally, about your background and how you got into the outdoors and into guiding. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I mean, I from as far back as I can remember, I was, you know, fishing has been a huge part of my life and that's all thanks to my dad. Uh, he's a, uh, he's a huge fisherman. He was, he was never a guide, but you know, always had the passion for fishing and he instilled that in me in a very young age. So that's, he was the reason how I, why I got into it. And I give him, uh, I attribute a lot of my success to him for sure. Yeah, and, and that was something I guess I wasn't really expecting when I watched the film was to see so much about your family and your upbringing, but it seemed very obvious that fishing for you and your dad was something that was very special. What, what was it like being a kid and having that type of relationship with your dad and also that type of opportunity to spend so much time on the water and out in nature? Uh, it was great. It was, I feel very fortunate for my upbringing and for that relationship that I do have with my dad uh I mean he was in a position with 
you know, his career where he was, where he was able to spend a lot of time on the water. And he always tried, you know, he always got me on the water with him as much as possible and as much, as much as my mom would let it, let him for sure. You know, there, was, there were plenty of days where, uh, you know, you know, the tides were right and there was a bunch of fish around and he'd, he'd allow me to call in, call in sick to school and, you know, take off and go fishing. So very, uh, very lucky. Yeah. Um, can you tell me about how you, how you got into guiding? When did you decide that you wanted to, to take something that you loved growing up doing and try to make a career out of it? Yeah, well, growing up, I, uh, you know, I never really saw myself as eventually being a guide. I, uh, I got my license at 18 after I graduated high school and I got my license so that I could guide through college. I went to FGCU here in town and, you know, at the time it seemed like a perfect opportunity for me it was you know flexible I could choose my schedule it was good money I had the opportunity to use my dad's boat so I mean that was really a no-brainer for me but when I got my license I was never expecting myself to be oh you know that's what my career was going to be and when did that switch for you uh that switch it was really my junior year I got the job in Alaska and Hmm. just fell in love with it so much that I was going to do whatever I could to maintain, you know, being able to work in Alaska in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And the obvious answer for me was to, you know, go full time in guiding and, you know, make that my career. Yeah. And, and how does a South Florida college student end up getting linked up with uh, operation in Alaska? <clears throat> Uh, well, that was uh, actually thanks to uh, Captain Andrew Bostick. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him at all mm-hmm. or not, but uh, he was uh, he was uh, my dad chartered Andrew a lot back back when I was growing up, and I was fortunate to be able to you know go on a lot of those trips, and eventually that relationship turned from client guide to family friend. And so I've always had a ton of respect for Andrew. I've always looked up to him as the best of the best. And I listen to what he has to say and any recommendation that he would make. So he had, it was the fall of 2010. He had gotten back from a summer trip up in Bristol Bay. And uh, they had an opening for a guide at that lodge. And he was... He had suggested it to me as it was something that he he thought I would love. He told me that if he was my age, he would jump on it in a heartbeat. And so, I mean, that carried a lot of weight with me. I And, I mean, at the time, I had, you know, never – I really didn't know much about Alaska. I didn't know anything about Bristol Bay. But I knew that Andrew telling me that that's what he would do at my age, that I'm going to look into it. Hmm. And, and so he gave me the contact information for the place where he went. Um, contacted him, wrote a resume. Uh, they eventually hired me, and it actually fell through about two months after getting the job. Um, I guess the spot that I was filling was um, for a guy that, had, for medical reasons, wasn't able to come back the following season. Ended up working out for him, and they didn't. They ended up not needing me. Hmm. So I told Andrew what happened, and he's like, he's like, no problem. I got another place for you, and I'm like. <laughs> all right you know like all right you got it all right what tell me more about this and it was uh you know a someone that he guided with down in the park um 
they worked at this small tent camp in Bristol Bay, and they were in need of a guide. And so <clears throat> he put me in touch with John Perry, who's the owner of Angler's Alibi, and a uh, phone interview eventually led to me getting the job, but it was, and it was, it was kind of a funny interview, you know, I mean, he's like, <clears throat> like Landry, tell me, uh, how many years of experience you have in Alaska? I was like, uh, well, sir, I've, I've never been to Alaska. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, salmon fishing. I've never caught a salmon, you know, and I could hear a little distress in his voice. I'm like, okay. Uh, you know, just assuming like, all right, Midwest trout fishing. Nope. Never done it. He's like, all right, well, tell me what you do do. And I was like, you know, I fish Florida and, you know, I like to fish for tarpon. And it was kind of like, you know, that coupled with Andrew's recommendation. Because, I mean, it, Andrew carries, I mean, his name in the industry is, you know, garnishes a lot of respect. So his recommendation is what ultimately, you know, got the South Florida kid with no fresh water, no Alaska, no salmon experience. You know, he gave me a shot. So yeah, that's, that's an incredible kind of circumstance on, on to go up there. Tell me about here you are, you get, you finally get this job, you have one fall through, you get this opportunity to go to another place and no experience, no background in that. In the first time you ever kind of touched down in, in Alaska and, and started experiencing that wilderness, what was that like? Oh, it was incredible. And it was, it was interesting, you know, cause going up there, I had this picture in my head of what it was going to be like. And, you know, it, it never turns out, you know, the way you're picturing or what it's going to look like. And this was no different. You know, I remember flying in and the float plane from King Salmon to camp. And, like, I had this picture in my head of, you know, flying through, you know, mountainous ravines and, you know, coming through, you know, like small tight passes, mountains all around. And it was it was couldn't have been further from that. You know, I mean, it's mm. it's it's tundra leading from Bristol Bay all the way up to. You know, I mean, the mountains in the background, like they're there, but they're not, it's not like what I was picturing. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it's such a totally different landscape from anything that I had ever experienced or seen. And it's, it's so beautiful in its own right. And, you know, it was, uh, it was special. I'll never forget it, actually. Yeah, that's, I can't imagine. And I'm, I'm just thinking there's a big learning curve there, even with, your background in fishing and chasing tarpon. I mean, what, what did that first season look like for you? Uh, the first season was, uh, it was, it was great. I mean, the learning curve, you know, there's definitely is a learning curve, but it's not a steep learning curve. You know, I mean, uh, like salmon, for example, like you take a body of water, you know, you have a river that can't sustain millions and millions of salmon living in it, but, it sustains them for their two month run. So you have a small body of water that is, you know, taking in millions of salmon. Eventually they, you know, they're moving up to the spawning grounds. It's never a question of like, you know, is there going to be fish in the river or where they're going to be? Cause you can go up or down and you will find salmon mm. <clears throat> and salmon. And I didn't know this before going up there, but once salmon hit fresh water, they don't feed anymore for sustenance. So there's no matching the hatch, so to speak. You know, it's not mm -hmm. like, oh, the salmon are feeding on, you know, rainbow trout today or feeding on squid. You know, there there is none of that. It's it's all a uh, a reactive strike. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, these the salmon are hitting the lures because you're essentially pissing them off. So, I mean, it's 
to the learning curve in terms of catching salmon, it really wasn't wasn't hard, but there was a huge learning curve for me in the trout fishing, and that's that's what I really fell in love with the most up there is, is fishing for rainbow trout. Hmm. And, and what made you fall in love with the trout over the, the salmon fishing? <laughs> uh, it was more of the challenge, you know, and, and being able to engage in fishing that I'm used to or, you know, you're fishing for, you know, you're hunting a fish that is actively feeding and, you know, so you have to think like a fish, you know, like, all right, fish is going to be, you know, in structure. It's going to be in a deep hole, you know, reading the water, the fish feeding on bugs. You know, if it's early in the season, um, you know, trout are hungry. They'll eat absolutely anything that's available to them from bugs to leeches to salmon small to even rodents like mice. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just that act, you know, um, actual hunt for fish and, you know, trying to trick them is what, is what got me captivated for sure. Mm. And it's interesting because, I mean, growing up in South Florida, being a saltwater fisherman, having no trout fishing or freshwater experience, the stereotype we kind of, you know, at least I gave it was like, you know, why do I, you know, why would I ever want to go trout fishing and fish for something that's, you know, as big as the bait I use down here. And the first day I ever did it, you know, it, it clicked, you know, first mm. fish I caught, like, oh, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> yeah. So you had mentioned that, you know, with Andrew, that he was a mentor for you. When you got up to Alaska, was that for you? Did you find a lot of other mentors involved in the fishing up there? Or was it, you know, did you feel a little isolated? How did that kind of roll out for you? <clears throat> uh, no, I mean, uh, John Perry, uh, he did a great job of making sure that I felt comfortable before, you know, I ever took clients out on the river. And um, the whole guide staff there at the time was very accommodating and, you know, willing and eager to teach me anything that I needed to learn about the fishery. <clears throat> and uh, so my first year that I got up there, I got up there in early June. We wouldn't take clients until, you know, the, the end of June, 1st of July. And that was just in timing the salmon run. And so, you know, being up there, not knowing very much and loving to fish, like I wanted to fish as much as possible to get myself, you know, in a position where I was ready to guide. And so, I mean, I fished, me and my friend Donnie, we would go out every day after dinner. And I mean, for three weeks, you know, like we hadn't caught a salmon yet. You know, I'm like, man, this is kind of bizarre, you know, like we got clients coming in and like you know i'm hearing all the stories about you know how great the fishing is and like you know, i've been fishing fishing my ass off for three weeks and i hadn't even caught one yet mm-hmm. and so i i was <laughs> i remember going to jp and uh, i was like jp like you know it was the first day of guiding i was like how am i gonna know which one it is you know like what salmon is it that i caught you know and he was like oh you'll know you'll know and, and it, it ended up working out and it was amazing like the the day the, the clients came into camp, literally, there was, you know, thousands and thousands of sockeye swimming by the dock, like, the day they came by. And it was, like, you know, all the stories I had heard, how they, you know, everyone was telling, like, just be patient. They're going to come. And, boy, did they come. And, yeah, it was, mm. it was cool. It was so fun to be able to, you know, learn a whole new fishery and something that was totally different from anything I had ever done before. Mm. And, and when you came back to fishing Florida after that season, did you feel like it sharpened you as an angler and, and guide in any way? 
<clears throat> uh, absolutely. I, f I feel like any time where as a fisherman you go into a new fishery, you know, you learn you learn different tactics, different different ways of doing things that might not, you know, they might not all translate over to, you know, the next fishery you jump into, but there will be little things that you take away from it. And then just like that ability to figure out how to catch a fish, no matter, you know, if it's swimming in a river, in a lake, in an ocean, just that ability to figure out, you know, to target your species, figure out where it is, where it's living, and how to catch it. I mean, that's mm -hmm. it translates through all aspects of fishing. Was that something that you picked up on pretty early as a kid? Because some kids, they just, they go out and they kind of just do what they're told. And then some kids are a lot more interested in just understanding everything happening. Like when you were a kid and you were fishing with your father, was that a, a something ingrained in you really young? Yeah. Yeah, my dad, uh, he always he always stressed, you know, realizing why something was happening. You know, I mean, you know, was the bite really good because of the tide? Was it slow because of the tide? Was it, you know, did the wind have anything to do with it? You know, you know pay attention to the flat. Do you see birds? Do you see mullet? You know, do you see bait? Do you see signs of life? Just really made me aware of my surroundings while I'm on the water. And, and that's something that, I take with me to this day and I try and pass that on to anybody that's, you know, trying to learn is one of the <clears throat> most important things in, in my eyes is just being in tune and in touch with the water that you're fishing. Hmm. And fast forward a few years, maybe a little more than a few years, how do you get brought into a, a large video project like um, everyone in between? What's, what's the backstory to, to your involvement in it? Uh, I, I feel like I, I was the one that made, was able to make the connection between the Everglades and Bristol Bay. And, you know, growing up, I mean, Chris and Daniel were some of my best friends, you know, I mean, we guided together, we fished together. So, you know, they knew my story, they'd seen my pictures and videos. And I think that is where the, uh, that's what led to me being in the film. Hmm. And when I was watching the film, you said something that I thought was just a really powerful way to phrase it when, when looking at the Everglades and then looking at the Pebble Mine and saying that you would hate to, to tell your kids one day about the days before the Pebble Mine. And I thought that was a really strong, powerful way to put it when thinking about what we're seeing in the Everglades and, and thinking about the Pebble, you know, the Pebble Mine. To you, was making the film a, an emotional thing experience just having to actually sit down and really process and look through all of that it was it was definitely emotional the uh the first time i saw the film uh it uh it brought tears to my eyes and it brought tears to everybody that was in the viewing party and it it really it that goes i mean i got to give all the credit to to noah and how he put the film together and just showcasing the beauty of both places and you know then you realize like you know like these places are so beautiful but there is a threat to that beauty you know i mm. mean Brist bristol bay if you put in a huge gold mine the headwaters of bristol bay the potential for disaster is 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 so great and it's so scary you know i mean like i said in the film i mean it would be terrible to you know, be telling my kids about what Bristol Bay used to be like, about how good it used to be before the, you know, before the contamination, before the pollution. So 
it was it was definitely powerful to uh watch it all come together for sure absolutely and and uh, you know you said it kind of struck a chord when you watched it I mean was it the the imagery what was it in particular that you felt like really hit that chord well for me it was it was def a lot of it was the relationship with my parents and how that translated through my career and then it would have to be imagery uh Noah did such a good job at showing viewers the beauty and just raw nature of Bristol Bay and it's it's a very hard thing to do it's almost like when you're out on the water and in rough seas and you pull out your phone to like take video and you know show how rough it is and then you go and you look at the video and it's like you know it doesn't look bad at all it's the same as with Bristol Bay and Alaska in general it's like you know it's hard to do it justice it's just so raw and so beautiful that it's hard to convey that through through a camera and mm-hmm. the, the way he did it was, was a great job yeah, he did a great job, and I, I love that he pulled the family element in. I thought that really added a great dimension that I haven't seen very much in a lot of films that are kind of in the outdoor industry. And for me, I've spent a lot of time in the Southeast talking with people who fished it you know, 40, 50 years ago. Even some people have fished it upwards of 60, 70 years ago. And it, it's kind of truthfully kind of depressing a lot of times to hear about the way that such and such used to be and the way that this fishery was. But there was something about seeing the two put next to each other kind of that, that I guess gave me hope of looking at here's a a part that this hasn't happened to yet. And through the imagery, it kind of brought a a hope to it and, and also a hope that maybe we could see restoration happen in South Florida as well. For you, did you find some hope in making the project and, and looking at both those two different places? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was it was great to see the film and see that the message, you know, the story, the way that Noah told the story and made the connection um, to both places. You know, it brings awareness to, you know, everybody that might be aware of the issues facing Bristol Bay, but they might not know about the issues facing us down here in Florida with the Everglades and vice versa. You know, I mean, people in Florida that have never even heard of Bristol Bay, you know, like now they get to, you know, see and experience through the video how beautiful and awesome it is while still making, you know, they're they're made aware of the threat to that pristine nature of, of Bristol Bay. Yeah. And you know, with you going through the process of working with Noah and the team and everybody involved in the project, did you feel like the actual kind of helping put together the film and recording the interviews and everything that comes with that, did you find that to change you in any way as an angler and guide? I don't think it, it, it didn't change me as an angler or a guide. It just, it made me so proud to work with an organization like like captains and the Save Bristol Bay campaign with Trout Unlimited. I mean, just to see how hard these groups work, you know, 24-7 to fight for us. That was the biggest takeaway I got Mm -hmm. from it. And what was the most challenging part of putting together such a a big project from from your role? What was the most challenging piece? (sighs) Uh, And the hardest part for me was just – you know, being on camera, you know, it's, 
you know, Noah would always be like, you know, just just be yourself. And, you know, like I had a, I have a hard time flipping that switch, you know. I mean, like once I go on camera, it's, you know, like I just kind of, you know, that was the challenge for me is just being myself on camera and not kind of freezing up or locking up and I'd forget what I want to say or, mm-hmm. you know, we'd get done with an interview and then I'd think about it and I'm like, ah, I wish I would have said this or said that differently. And, but <clears throat> Sure. Sure. And did, did you feel, I'm sure that being a part of something that you know is going to reach so many people because of the, the people backing it, the, the great organizations that you know are going to push this out there. I'm sure that was pretty nerve wracking. Do you have any tips on, uh, on how to try to settle those nerves of kind of being in the light for that moment? <laughs> the best thing I found to help was uh, some shots of tequila, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was asking before the interview. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> oh, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, and I'm guessing, you know, obviously there's a lot of challenges with it. And you mentioned that it was rewarding to, to see the whole thing together. And I hope that, this film doesn't just have a, a, isn't a flash in the pan, but goes on for, for many, many years to come as a, as a work that introduces people and inspires people to you. You know, when you first watched the film and you saw it all come together, w- what was going through your mind that you're hoping other people will get from it? Uh, I would say if people would really just realize, you know, how important it is where you have a place like Bristol Bay that hasn't been screwed up yet, but it's facing the potential threat to be screwed up. We have a place like the Everglades that has been manipulated by man, unfortunately for the worse. And you realize how hard it is to fight to restore it and get it back to some form of its natural working order. It is so much easier to protect these places and prevent prevent the threat from ever happening than it is to mitigate that damage in the future. Hmm. So, so, I mean, if we, if we can all stand up together, make our voices heard and fight for Bristol Bay now, it will be saving generations, you know, a very uphill battle. At the end of the film, you know, thinking of what you just said, there was something I thought was well worded that I wrote down. It said, uh, united, we can move mountains. And it was kind of looking at, okay, these are some really big obstacles in front of us. And that's something that I think sounds really great and looks looks good on a, you know, an, a, a, a poster in an office of <laughs> some, you know, some sort of inspirational poster, yeah, but yeah. practically lived out. Like, what do you feel like unity looks like for the outdoor community to try to fight for these things? <clears throat> it's... To me, it's it's the whole outdoor community coming together to, to fight for places like this that are so special. Even if it's not, you know, even if you've never been to the Everglades or been to Bristol Bay, you know, like you can still make a difference in the fight. And I think that's that was an important thing for me is is getting that message out there where we need everybody to get involved, not just not just you know, the outdoorsmen that go to Alaska in the summer, the people that live in Florida and, you know, fish the Everglades and are, you know, in touch with that environment where they, they're affected firsthand. It's to get everybody involved and, you know, because together we, we, we really can make a difference, but, Mm -hmm. you know, 
we're not going to stop Pebble with just the user group of outdoorsmen in Alaska. Mm-hmm. And what do you feel like that looks like for the person who is living in a landlocked, you know, middle middle class, you know, kind of person who doesn't get to be out in nature as much as they'd like to? What does it look like for the average Joe to join that fight? Um, the best thing they can do is is to gro- is to join organizations, you know, like Captains for Clean Water and Trout Unlimited. I mean, we're we're lucky to have these organizations that are fighting so hard for us. Hmm. I mean, join these organizations and then be ready to to stand up and answer the call. You know, when you see a post asking to sign this peti- petition or to contact your congressman, congresswoman, or to attend a rally, I mean, do it. You know, don't just like the picture, you know, like hmm. take the take the couple minutes, sign the petition, you know, write a letter to your congressman. And, you know, if you if you're willing, attend the rally. So it, it makes a difference. They're not just asking you to do it for no reason. It it's they're asking you because they need you. Hmm. And, and for you, there's a lot of people who fish Alaska or fish Florida's waters and they have similar experience to what you've experienced, but yet don't have this emotional connection and don't have an urgency to join the fight. What what about your life or what about your experiences or what moment caused you to really say, I'm going to go all in for this? Uh, It really didn't take long, Hunter. Uh, Just being in that environment and seeing something like I've said that is just so pristine and so perfect and and I see that play out with you know all of the clients that visit Angler's Alibi every summer I mean it <clears throat> people leave after a week fishing with us at Angler's Alibi and like you know it truly you know it says sounds cliche but it's, it's life-changing you know it, it really is it gives them hope that there are places like this that still do exist you know, like no matter, no matter what, what is happening back in your hometown, you know and I mean? Here in Fort Myers, I mean, I've seen this place go from, you know, what it was when I grew up to what it is now. And I mean, back, you know, I would have thought this was, you know, Fort Lauderdale compared to what it was when I grew up. And so it's just mm-hmm. giving people hope that, you know, like there are places like this that do exist. Like you can, you know, t- be able to take your family and your friends and get away on a trip where you really are in perfect nature. Hmm. I guess on the other side of the spectrum, and I feel like I, I fit in this category often is there's people who are uninformed or just don't, don't care. And then there's people who do care, but they're honestly just, it it's easy to grow tired of talking about conservation. You feel like, man, it's just, nonstop everywhere I look is is a new initiative, a new organization, a new issue for you. When you grow tired, how do you try to recharge your batteries to care and and not just grow numb to it all? Uh, To be honest, I mean, anytime I feel like I need to recharge, it's just getting out in the environment. Um, You know, getting, getting out on the boat, on the water, and, and just, you know, seeing, you know, for us here in, in uh, I live in the Fort Myers area, and we get out, get out on the boat and just, you know, I'll see these grass flats that I used to fish as a kid that are no longer grass flats, you know? I mean, it just kind of ignites something in me that makes me want to fight. 
Mm-hmm. And in the same regard for, for Bristol Bay, I mean, every summer when I go back, it's just, it blows my mind that this threat is, is still around. You know, I mean, how could anybody want to, to ruin this, to jeopardize that? Mm-hmm. If it's and, good with you, I'd love to transition into some rapid fire questions. It's got a <laughs> list of things. I think everything that you've said today is, is really helpful. And I got more questions about the project and once again, I thought it was just a great film and I think you did a great job. I appreciate you, you know, getting outside of your comfort zone to be a part of it and to share uh, your experiences. But if it's good with you, I'd love to, to do some of these kind of rapid fire questions I have stored up also. Fire away. So I'm guessing that with a project like everyone in between that there's uh, some bloopers here and there. Are there any funny <laughs> behind the scenes stories that you're able to slash willing to share? Ooh. Any, uh, pre-ritual fireball swigging gone wrong or anything like that? Uh, the first thing that comes to my mind, I mean, it, I don't know if it counts cause it wasn't on camera, but it definitely should have been. But, uh, during, during the week that, uh, we were filming in Alaska, um, Two of my really good friends, Corey McGuire and Kyle Potts, were were there as well, and uh, we actually we had a bear in camp, uh, an actual real bear that got into camp the first night they were there, and uh, got in through the bear fence, and you know dug up our gray water hole, knocked over the grill. <clears throat> so I mean, like it was you know in the back of their minds that you know like wow you know this is Alaska like bears can come and camp, and uh, wit. Uh, you know, he had a, we were messing around, he had a hunting app and we f- figured out that he, <laughs> he had, uh, you know, animal noises on this app. And so of course, you know, they had, uh, grizzly bear noises. So we took, you know, Wits app, hooked it up to uh, a portable speaker and, uh, around 1am Chris gave him, uh, the old fake bear prank and it was it was done better than <laughs> better better than i had i had seen in my my 10 years up there it was uh it was honest to god it was the hardest i've ever laughed in my life what but, what, uh, what happened i mean what's the response to something like that <clears throat> well i mean my hat's off to wit i mean he uh he went like he assumed the role you know what i mean i'm surprised he wasn't on all fours when he was doing it but uh and i mean like to give you a picture i mean you know like these are it sounded like two bears were fighting, you know, to the death. And so he's, he's rolling around like banging on the tents, you know, like just <laughs> knocking stuff over it. I mean, like there was, there was collateral damage, you know, which you don't really think about it at the time. But I mean, we had, we had 10 other clients in camp that were scared for their lives as well. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like I, I remember walking into the lodge, you know, and like I'm just got tears running down my face and like I walked through the kitchen into the, the main area and like you know there's, there's there's four clients sitting in there like you know in their pajamas with a flashlight just like absolutely petrified and you know they asked like you know is it gone and I didn't at the time I didn't have the heart to tell them that it was it was a joke you know what I mean so like just try to play it off as like it was all safe you guys can go back to your tents now I mean like you know we got it under control <laughs> you're like don't worry I handled him myself yeah yeah I I, uh, I took care of the situation guys you <laughs> sleep tight um that that i actually had on here you know so one of the things that we have plenty of bears in my neck of the woods here in florida but certainly Mm -hmm. not a threat when fishing i mean give us some tips on dealing with bears in alaska frontier uh biggest tip i can give someone is just to respect the bear 
you know, don't ever push the envelope with it, you know, as as much as as close as, you know, you might want to think you want to get to the bear to take a better picture, you know, I mean, it's it's best to just respect the bear in the sense of like, you know, give him space, let him go where he wants to go. Like if you're in a if you're in a little honey hole in the river and a bear starts working down, you know, like don't try and scare him away from you, you know, back up, let the bear do his thing and eventually he's going to carry on. Um, mm. So, I mean, a lot of people are, you know, and rightfully so, very intimidated by the bear. Um, you've, it's, there really, there is, I don't want to say there is no threat because there's obviously some threat when you're dealing with a thousand pound predator, but in, <laughs> in, 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 in Bristol Bay, I mean, like you really get the feeling that like the bears are there for the fish. They're not there for you, you know? And it's not like, you know, everyone's like, well, what if this one wants to have a surf and turf tonight? You know, like, God, if I, if I had a, if I had a dollar for every time I heard that line, you know, but I mean, they don't, they're there for the fish. They want the fish. They don't want any, any, anything to do with you. Um, just, respect the bear give them space and everything will be fine outside of the bears what was the biggest hurdle for you transitioning from being a saltwater florida guy to being up in in alaska freshwater uh that would definitely be like understanding the names of the flies that i'm throwing in the spring for trout (laughs) (laughs) you know because i mean i'll fish a lot of guys uh that are absolutely die hard trout fishermen you know i mean like these are guys that like you know while they're fishing they're they're catching you know i look over and they're you know catching bugs with their hands you know and like looking at it letting it go and then like you know they catch one like hey landry what's this and like you know like at first like i don't know anything about bugs nothing you know and so like trying to come across as a competent guide you know like and not make myself sound like a total idiot you know like that was the biggest learning curve for me it was like just kind of understanding the names of the flies that i was using because like i wouldn't know what bug it what the name of the bug it was imitating but like i sure as hell knew that this this one works really good and if you present it perfectly right here along the seam you're going to catch a fish but i don't know the you know i don't know the, the latin name for for the species is that that's not something you can make up with them i'm guessing <laughs> uh well i mean like i would i would try you know i mean people say like landry what's this you know i don't i don't just well like starting off you know i, I wouldn't just say like i don't know i would always <laughs> I would, <laughs> oh well uh that's a it's a brown caddis you know and i could tell <laughs> you know or like you know that's a uh that's a mayfly or stonefly and like i could tell like you know when i you know it, it would work fine a lot of times because you know the people didn't know any different themselves but you know got into some funny situations where like you know the, the client definitely knew more than the guide when it came to insects you know so yeah or, or the names of the flies you're like Landry, that was a great nymph what was that I'm like oh that was a royal wolf it was we call that a th- yeah well depends some people call it this up here we call it a royal wolf oh you know and like <laughs> it looks nothing like a royal wolf you know i'm just trying to like <laughs> re- <laughs> repeat names that i you know was familiar with and i i had heard you know Fake yeah. it till you make it. Yeah. 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 We could always pull. Well, over here we call them, you know, that's not, that's not a specific to freshwater though. I mean, I hear time and time again, you know, with people who are guiding where they're like, well, my guy down in the keys said, and you're like, all right, well, you're not in the keys right now. Right. You're with me, right. You know, right. 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 Yeah. That's right. certainly not a specific challenge, but I think that, uh, 
there's definitely, I guess, whether it's tarpon or it's, you know, salmon or trout, there's definitely anglers who have a real passion and knowledge. And it's always a, always a kind of a, a catch 22 to fish with them, I guess, in some ways, you know, I meet guys who love fishing with fresh first time anglers and love guys who love fishing with just world-class anglers, you know, it's pros and cons on each side. Absolutely. So yeah, I would say the hardest challenge for me was just getting, getting the lingo down <laughs> for sure. Um, so, you know, you had mentioned something earlier in the interview, you know, just all the sponsors and partners that came together to make this project, uh, work. And that's to me been one of the really cool things about captains for clean water is I feel like they've been able to pull together a lot of great companies and organizations and people well beyond just Florida's borders, um, around this. And, you know, uh, all of my sponsors were involved in this film and I'm, I'm really have great relationships with them. I'm really proud to be a part of them. Uh, you know what they're doing. We talk a lot about getting individuals involved in the fight to you. What does it look like for an organization, a company um, to join that fight as well? And, and in your opinion, how do we get more companies to try to, to join that? Uh, you asking like how, how a company would join the fight? Or? Yeah, like, yeah, to, to, you know, how do we get more, we talk a lot about individuals, but how do we get more companies to, to join the fight? And what does that look like? I, I feel like really it's just, it's just reaching out to, to the companies, you know, I mean, you present them with the challenge that we're facing. And I mean, I'd be hard pressed to think that, you know, you explain to these brands know these challenges and threats and then saying like like, no we don't want to be a part of that Mm -hmm. i feel i feel like all you know the major outdoor outdoor brands um you know they're aware that that's that's you know these are the areas that are vital to their business you know Mm because their customers are going and you know fishing in these places and using their products and you take you take away you know, places to fish, you won't have anybody to sell fishing gear to. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really well put. Um, I I definitely, um, I think we're seeing a a positive trend there and it seems like customers appreciate when companies are making efforts to get involved. And there's, there are so many different things, you know, companies can't necessarily be involved in everything, but I think expecting companies to have a care and concern is, is certainly reasonable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it would, you know, like you said, I mean, people, especially, I mean, like myself, like I want to support brands that support causes I believe in when it comes to the environment. Hmm. And if you've had it where the role was reversed and you were to expose, you know, like companies that didn't want to join the fight, you know, I feel like, you know, people would stop using those brands just for that reason it might be the best product it might be the best rod the best reel the best lure the best fly line but if as an organization that all they care about is the product and not the places where they're used and how special those are to the whole picture i i mean i think that would uh that would really change a lot of people's opinions about the brands they're using that's strong that's good um something i I noticed about your tarpon fishing is that you do a good deal of fishing for tarpon with kids. What, what tips would you give just in general with fishing with kids and, and also just fishing with kids for, for big game? 
Yeah, well, the the hardest thing with kids and especially younger kids with tarpon fishing is just having, you know, having them be patient enough to let it play out. You know, a lot of times, you know, they'll lose interest, uh, you know, if there's there's no action, you know, right off the bat. But, hmm. you know, I see it a lot of times over there's there's kids that are like they're into it. They're in it more than their dad is. You know, I mean, they're. Mm-hmm they're down to do whatever it takes to catch a tarpon and they understand that you know it's a lot of work and it is a hunt and it is a process and uh so it's it's hard to translate that to every kid um Mm -hmm. i don't know uh do you give them a pep talk i mean is there a is is there a john landry pep talk that people can give kids (laughs) (laughs) oh man i mean i uh you know like depending on the age, you know, I mean, when kids get on the boat and like, you know, like I try and get them pumped up for, you know, what we're trying to accomplish, you know? And I mean, like how cool it would be if, if we do catch one, you know I mean? So like you're, you're kind of leaving the door open for the possibility of not catching a fish that day. Right. But you're also, you're hyping it up to the point where, you know, like when it does happen, you know, all these things you talked about, you know, like they come to life, you know, like you can really see that you know, you can see that play out and it's just, it's so cool to see. Mm -hmm. It really is. And and I'm not, I'm not trying to put you in the hot seat here. Um, so you're certainly not in the hot seat, but I I am curious. I've I've talked with different people and, um, I know you've done some, some tournament fishing. It's very obvious that you're passionate about conservation. How, how have you felt and thought through tournament fishing and I guess some of the controversy that people uh, many people think, okay, this is bad for the environment. This is not good for the fishery. How have you thought through that? Uh, well, I, uh, I definitely don't fish as many tournaments as I used to. And, you know, back when I was, when I was younger and, and doing a lot of the tournaments, I didn't have as good of a picture of the importance of conservation. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I fished a ton of tournaments that were, you know, way in, tournaments essentially where you're you know bringing the fish back to you know a live way in and then I mean like the older I got you know I realized that you know this is this is not a good thing to be doing it's not good for the fishery it's not good for what it's promoting to people that are you know watching the tournaments or kids that are you know aspiring to one day be a tournament angler it's you know I I had voice for, you know, photo tournaments and catch and release really from some of the last tournaments I used to, used to fish. And I mean, Mm -hmm. now all I, now the only tournament I really do is, uh, is a tarpon tournament every year. And that tournament has done an amazing job with, um, how they handle the fish, how they promote the fishing techniques for those fish, and then what they do with the money they raise from the tournament. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I've, I've, uh, it's just something I'm interested in hearing different people's perspective on. I fished in, I, I didn't grow up doing tournament fishing, never really been into it, uh, for, for various reasons. And I fished in my first one actually this, this past year and saw a lot of really positive things come out of it too, from people getting together to talk about, uh, it was the Calford tournament in Jacksonville and they benefited St. John's Riverkeeper and, and really made an effort to try to share, uh, with, a lot, which was predominantly local anglers about some of their water quality issues and what St. John's Riverkeeper was doing. And I really saw some positives in it. And I think it's 
easy for people to straw man either side. Um, but was curious about that. Just something I'm trying to think through and, and learn from. Um, so yeah, yeah absolutely. Helpful. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely opportunities for the tournaments to, you know, like the example you just gave where, you know, they're a benefit for conservation and bringing awareness to the issues that we're all facing. And then there's, you know, a tournament series where you can tell that, you know, the directors are out to make, make money, you know? And I mean, it's all about sponsorship dollars and, you hmm. know, promoting the, and it's not about conservation and the tournaments in the future. I mean, I, I think we're witnessing that now is the tournaments that are conservation minded are growing and more popular and the other tournaments seem to be fading out, which is, uh, which is a great thing for, for all of us. So full circle back to, uh, in a similar vein to tips on fishing with kids. Uh, I saw a few photos that looks like you, you fished with your dog. Is that true? Do you fish with your dog some? Uh, my dog comes in every trip I have. (laughs) Okay. So as somebody who doesn't bring my dog fishing, Give me some, give me some pointers and how do you do that, uh, in a way that I guess doesn't, you know, interfere too much with what you're doing? Well, I mean, it's, that's really, that's really because of, uh, my dog's name is Kobe. And, uh, I mean, most of that has to do with his personality as a dog. And I mean, I've been taking him out with me on charters ever since he was eight weeks old. And, uh, you know, he's very mild, mild mannered. Um, he, he doesn't get in the way. He, he's just happy to be there. You know, I mean, it would be, it would be hard with a dog that's, you know, very energetic, very hyper, you know, like running all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just, he's chill. He's, he's happy to be there. He just, he lays, if it's in Alaska, he's laying in the sun. If it's in Florida, he's trying to lay anywhere where he can find some shade. So, hmm. <clears throat> yeah, that is not my dog tips on, you got any tips on chilling a dog out? <laughs> Vodka. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah tequila shots i don't know <laughs> um yeah. yeah i mean there's there's you know like i think uh it it would be hard for me to you know as much as i would want to bring my dog on the boat if i had a dog that was you know hyper overly energetic it would be hard for me to bring him on a charter on a paint where you know someone is paying or the experience they're going to have that day. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want my dog, I wouldn't want my dog to interfere with that in any way, shape or form. But, um, Kobe's great. He, uh, I mean, I think a lot of the clients, uh, <laughs> feel like a lot of them come to fish more with Kobe than they do with me. <laughs> well, I, that either says a lot about him or you <laughs> <laughs> or a little bit somewhere in between. <laughs> no, that's yeah. great. So I know you, you, you know, we were able to get this interview in before, uh, you're planning a big camping trip to the Everglades. Could, could you tell us about kind of what you guys are, are planning and cooking up down there? Uh, I mean, it's not really a big trip by any, any means. Um, this time of year, I try and uh, get down there as much as possible. And, uh, usually like to go for three days, two nights. And, um, I like to put in in Chukaluski and, you know, fish down South ways and, if uh if the water temperature is above 72 degrees i'm always tarpon minded and uh you know if it's uh if you know if it's chilly weather i i love getting up in the creeks snook fishing but uh it's just you know the time of year i have the time and the ability to get down there so i try and Mm -hmm. try and go as much as possible what what do you what are like the essentials of of you know doing a camping trip like that the essentials um Better make sure you got a tent that uh, doesn't have any holes in it. 
Um, I <laughs> I like to uh, I like to do it as comfortable as possible. You know, I mean, <laughs> a lot of times, a lot of times running down there, you'd think we were going for like a two week trip. You know, but I mean, like, uh, you know, we we take air mattresses and you know, cooler full of good food, and you know, we we, we try to do it try to do it right. You know, um, <laughs> a lot of times, you know, kayakers will pull up and you know, like they've been they've been down there for a week and you know, eating you know, peanut butter, protein bars, and ramen noodles. And, you know, like we show up and we're, you know, <laughs> grilling steaks and, you know, eating fresh fish and, you know, like where they're saving grace, you know, so. Uh, <laughs> hey, man, I'll trade you one of these uh, peanut butter sandwiches for one of those ribeyes. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. <laughs> you know, let alone, let alone a cold beer, you know, I mean, you give it, yeah. So, but I think, I think any trip you do, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, important to, uh, to be comfortable and, you know, enjoy your time down there for sure. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, um, I could definitely, uh, spend a lot longer kind of picking your brain through, through some different things, but, uh, it was really great just to sit down and talk about it and any closing thoughts as, you know, hopefully more and more people see this film. Uh, just really, you know, if, if you see the film and, and you, you like the film, you know, pl please share it with, you know, your friends, your family, or via your social media channels. And if it motivates you to action, you know, please take action. Please consider joining Captains for Clean Water, for Trout Un to join Trout Unlimited, and to pay attention to the Save Bristol Bay campaign. Um, and like I said earlier, just, you know, making yourself available and ready to answer the call when they call on you to sign those petitions or attend a rally or write a letter so yeah well john thank you so much for how you've joined the fight and um i know that it's it's exciting in a lot of ways to be a part of something like this but at the end of the day too you know you always open you're putting yourself out there you're making yourself vulnerable opening yourself up to to criticism and um i'm grateful for it and i hope that uh this sets a pattern for companies and individuals and and guides and anglers for generations to come so um, great film. I hope everybody checks it out and, uh, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Hunter. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me on here and for all your support to, uh, to this movement. It's uh, greatly appreciated by all of us. So thank you. Thanks again for listening to the captain's collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is the captain's collective.